I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in many cities in our country and throughout the world, if you go into um, traditional and um, practicing Jewish neighborhoods, you will see wires that are strung up above the street that surround certain areas of their neighborhood for committed and orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. And I didn't know that they were so prevalent throughout the world. I, I found out this week that they are in 23 countries, and even in our country, they're in cities in 34 different states. And these, these wires are called um, iruvs, uh, the plural would be Iruvin, Iruvin. And the purpose of them is to allow the Jews in that community to move more freely on Sabbath. Because they have restrictions put out by the rabbis in 39 different categories that they must um, obey during Sabbath, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And throughout history, they have, they have found ways to, to expand some of these. And one of the ways is to create these zones you see, aruv means mixture, and it comes from a longer Hebrew phrase that, that means mixing of domains. And mixing of domains is one of the 39 areas that they have to practice on Sabbath. And so what they've done is there are rules that you can't move, you can't lift things. One of the rules is you can't lift things, and that means anything. You can't lift anything at all and carry it more than four cubits. And so what they've done is they, they have said that within, the rule says that within your own personal domain, in your home, you have more freedom there. And so what these, these in, enclosures do, and they're just a line that runs up above the city, up, uh, suspended like a, an old power line. And what these do is it connects all these personal domains and makes them one large domain so that they have freedom to move. And it was originally done to facilitate things like carrying children from house to house or a cane or a wheelchair or things like that. But as you can imagine, it, it functions to actually get around, if you will, the, the rabbi's Sabbath laws. And it expands what they can't do or can, that what they can do on the Sabbath. Now, we look at that and we know as Bible-believing Christians that these are man-made rules. And yet, even for man-made rules, they're looking for man-made get-arounds and work-arounds to man-made rules to expand them because the wisdom of man will always come up short when trying to do the applications of God. And when the wisdom of man rules the day without being fueled by the wisdom of God through his word, then we can get into trouble like these movable zones that are just ways to get around man-made laws. Now, I don't bring that up to... to um, uh, to, to tarnish a reputation of any of our Jewish friends. I just bring that up to serve the point that Isaiah would say, you're serving the doctrines of men. In fact, Jesus would say, you're serving the doctrines of men when you do things like this. And it's easy for us to sit over here and say, well, we'd never do that. Can you imagine putting up some kind of string up above the street to tell us where we can walk on the Lord's day? And yet, how many times do you disregard the word of the Lord? How many times do you know what's true, but create your own wire above your own world that you can expand that just a little bit? Using your own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God, you embrace certain things that the Lord doesn't want you to embrace, or you don't embrace things that the Lord does want you to embrace. You see, it's just as easy for us to get caught up in the doctrines of men rather than the doctrines of God. And listen to me. When I say the doctrines of men, I mean your doctrines. 
Not just some other guy that you think, okay, this is something that I might want to do. I'm talking about when you and I create doctrines. The scriptures are speaking to us. And the choice we make, are we going to live by the wisdom of God or the wisdom of man? Because when we live by the wisdom of God, then we set aside the wisdom of man. Remember, we saw this last week in chapter 28 of Isaiah, didn't we? We saw this where where the prophets and and the the people who should have known the word, they were sitting around and, and they were acting as if they were drunk. Maybe they were drunk. Instead of imbibing the word, they imbibed liquor and they lost all their sense. And the reason they lost all their sense is because they gave up on the word. And when you give up on the word, then you can do anything in your life that you want because you are the wisdom maker. You were the sovereign one over your life. And so we saw that in chapter 28, that that led to the fact that every time Isaiah spoke, those leaders were so disenchanted with the word. They hated the word so much. They were so blind to it that it sounded just like blah, 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 blah. And then we saw the rest of them in Jerusalem. They were scoffing at the word of God. They knew it but they refuse to believe it and apply it. Well, Isaiah in chapter 29 carries that forward, that same idea forward today as we move into our second woe of this series. But listen, what we want to do, we want to understand what Isaiah is telling the people in his land, but we also want to understand what Isaiah is telling us. How does this apply to us today? Where in our lives are we scorning the word of God to the point that God is closing it up for us. Where in our own lives are we we're so intent on setting aside the word of God unless we can mold it into what we want? Are we leading ourselves into falsehoods, maybe even sinfulness, and we're pretending like everything's all right? We still come day to day to day, maybe to our Bible studies, maybe we come to corporate worship, maybe even have our quiet times. We let day go on to day, go on to day doing the same thing, but it never affects us. Now, maybe that doesn't fit you, but maybe there's a part of that that it does. Maybe you're not one that despises the word of God, but still comes to church. But maybe you have those areas. Maybe you have those areas that you think I'm doing pretty well, except in this, but I'm just going to set that aside because God understands. God has spoken to you, but you're using your wisdom. Isaiah has a word for us today because he has a word to those in his own century And God never changes. His ways never change. So he's speaking to us as well. Let's stand, if you will, as we read. Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to cover this morning verses 1 through 14. As we've talked about before, in the ESV it says, ah, some of your versions say, woe. There are six of these in this section that we'll cover, and each of them will provide the, uh, a text for us on each successive Sunday. So you'll see that word beginning in verse 1. You'll also see that word beginning in verse 15. So we will cover verses 1 through 14 to, the mes- the, the, to the, uh, the, these two messages to Jerusalem. Isaiah 29.1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. 
Your voice shall come from the ground like a voice of a ghost. And from the dust, your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by Yahweh of hosts. With thunder and with earthquake and with great noise and whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as a th- when a thirsty man dreams he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And he has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this. He says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. In these verses, we witness four acts of Yahweh, Yahweh directed toward Ariel. Four acts of Yahweh directed toward Ariel. Now remember, as we have seen through this, through the woe sections of Isaiah already, woe, can, it can be a term of distress. It can also be a summons, like a summons to the bar. And I think in chapter 29, this functions as both. It's a woe, it's a, you, should, you should be fearful of this, but it's also a summons to the bar of God. And remember, it's God's people. This is Jerusalem. We've seen that clearly later on in our text. Now, earlier, we're, we're talking about Ariel, and we'll explain that in a minute. But this is the second of those woes. Remember, last time, we started with the northern kingdom and moved to Jerusalem. This time, in this woe, chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, it's all about Jerusalem. And it carries some of the same themes in a different way with a different message for us. So the first act of Yahweh directed against Ariel or directed toward Ariel is Yahweh will distress Ariel and bring her low. We see that right in verse 1 through 4. The first three words, ah, Ariel, Ariel. And you'll notice that we see Ariel again in verse 2 twice. And then we'll see Ariel again in verse 7. Well, as, you, as you've tracked, as I read the text, you know we're talking about Jerusalem. Ariel is identified later in our text as Jerusalem. But why use this word? 
Why use Ariel to refer to Jerusalem? We've had this before where Isaiah used kind of enigmatic language, like talk about the valley of vision to talk about a country. So we have the same thing here. And this word can mean several different things. It can mean lion of God, just a combination of those words. Ariel, it can mean lion of God. It could also mean a warrior or a hero. We see that if you have ESV, and I don't know if it's in all of the Bibles, but the ESV has a footnote that says it could mean lion of God or hero. I think warrior is better. Um, we see that um, in 2 Samuel 23, 20. Or it can also mean altar hearth. And we see that used in Ezekiel in chapter 43, verses 15 and 16. And so the question is, which of those meanings, and this is the only time that this word appears in Scripture, these times, and then in the Second Samuel and in the Ezekiel passage. So, so what does it mean for us? Does it mean hero? It doesn't seem to fit the context at all, or warrior. But it, it, it could mean, we could look at it and see where some of this could mean lion of God. But I think if it means lion of God, it's only in the first line of the first verse. Ah, Ariel, Ariel. Because look at the second line. The city where David encamped. So we're talking about past glory of Jerusalem. So it could mean lion of God. Just talking about the, the, um, uh, the past glory of Jerusalem. And clearly reading this passage we know their glory is not what it used to be. They are not following Yahweh like they used to. But I think when we get to the end in chapter 29 verse 2. I think that clearly is referring to an altar hearth. So, here's hermeneutically, the art and science of interpreting Scripture, the questions we have to ask. We, we teach ourselves all the time about what it means to interpret Scripture well. And if we have the same word used in the same section, we're going to start with the idea that it means the same thing until we have evidence from the text that it doesn't. So it seems to me that when we get to verse 2, we're clearly talking about God's punishment and the idea of altar hearth works in there for us to understand its meaning. That Jerusalem is the place where the altar of God, that place where Jerusalem, the, the priests would come and they would offer sacrifice and they would offer sacrifice so the people would have their sins dealt with all according to the commands of God. This was the seed of that. This is where that happened in the temple in Jerusalem. And now God is saying he's going to change the metaphor here and say, now you are going to become an altar heart. You are going to become the place where I come against you in judgment. So we go back to the beginning of the verse and say, do we have good reason to think it might mean lion of God there? And we could do that, but I'm going to assign the verse all the way through being the same meaning. This is Isaiah talking to the leaders and people of Jerusalem using language that is full of pun for them, that is full of twisted understandings that they have to listen to to understand what God is saying. Now, if you think the first two examples mean lion of God, you, you've got good company with that. There are people who would think that, and I won't argue against that, because it could very, very easily mean that at the beginning, talking about Jerusalem's past glory with David, that, that wonderful warrior king who represented them, and that could easily be the lion of God. But the most important thing is we know that we're talking about Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is what's identified in our text. So look what's happening in verse 1 and 2. It's the city where David encamped. That's part of the reason that, 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 that I'm thinking this has to do with the uh, altar hearth all the way through. Because David does go and camp. He's the one who takes Jerusalem. 
He's the one who takes it by force as a warrior. And if you look in, in, in for example, 2 Samuel 5, you will see in verses 6 through 11 that David takes Jerusalem by force. In chapter 6, the first five verses, he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And in 17 and 9 through 19 of chapter 6, he reestablishes the religious practices there. So the first thing he does when he takes Jerusalem is sets up the altar hearth, sets up the tent, sets up the place of meeting for sacrifices. So this is the glory days of Jerusalem. But look what it says. Add year to year, let the feast run their round. Now we think, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what God commanded to do? Live year to year and celebrate the feast and do the offerings as God has commanded? That's what he commanded them to do. But we know, because we've read the next verses, something's wrong with what they're doing, right? Because we know that God acts in justice and righteousness. So if he's coming against them, there's something sinful in what they're doing. So this is that that way of saying, uh, I heard it described in the Sunday school class as uh, uh, a uh, running in a circle or a hamster's wheel. I think that's a good description of it. You're, You're doing the things you're commanded to do, and you just do it day to day, year to year, and it's becoming to you like chapter 28, blah, blah, blah. That's what it's becoming. You're going through the motions. You're doing the things you're supposed to do, adding year to year, letting the calendar click forward and doing what you're supposed to do, but it's an outward doing, and we'll see that very clearly later on in the description. Verse 2 says, yet, even though you're doing that, even though David had his day, and you're still doing things like you're supposed to do outwardly, yet I will distress Israel. And then he describes that distress. There will be mourning moaning and lamentation and she shall be to me like an Ariel, like an altar hearth I am going to come against you and it will be as if I placed you on the hearth for a sacrifice because you've disobeyed me remember God is a covenant keeping God and he has said that when he told Israel this he said when you obey me I will bless you when you disobey me I will curse you and there are chapters that are identifying what those are So a neglect of the word and trust in other nations rather than Yahweh brings the covenant curses of God. And we see this not as in a, it's a, it's a, it's not a bug of God. It's a feature of God. He's faithful to his promises. And aren't we glad that he is faithful to his promises? So he says, I will distress them. There will be mourning and moaning and lamentations. I will encamp. David encamped in Jerusalem, but now I am going to encamp against you all around. And then he describes it. And I will besiege you with the towers and I will raise siege works against you. Now, is he talking about him doing it? Is God just walking down the ladder from from heaven and going to do this on the face of the earth? He uses other nations like he's done over and over in Isaiah. And this is a picture of the the siege that was placed against Jerusalem in 704 leading to 701 B.C. with Sennacherib and how he has come against Jerusalem. So Isaiah is prophesying that that's going to happen. But God says, I am doing that. Remember, God whistles for them and they come. Right? That's the way they were described already in Isaiah. The nations do God's bidding. And they can do it willingly or they can do it for their own glory. If they do it for their own glory, God will punish them. If they would do it willingly, then God will exalt them. And we've seen the remnant all the way through Isaiah. There's always judgment and hope and judgment and hope. And that remnant will come not only from Israel, but from these, all these other nations as well. So keep that in mind as we go through this 
section. This is what the armies do against Jerusalem. They set siege works up against them. When you were in, in this time frame, warfare, I mean, you didn't have drones to go in and attack the other, or planes, or missiles, or rockets, or anything that you could launch from a distance. You had to come and do this on your own. So they would block up the city. If it had walls, they would block all the entrances. If, I, if they didn't, they would build walls around it and stop all supplies from getting in so the people would starve. If they didn't have a water supply, it would be even quicker because they would be out of water. So that's what the siege looked like. And then they would give up with the army not even having to pull, not even having to pull a drawstring back with an arrow in it. That's what the picture is. And God says, I am doing that. Verse 4 says, and you will be brought low. Now, think. Think of what you know about the, the religious practices in the Old Testament. How lively they were, how visceral they were, the smells, the sights that would have been seen. On those feast days, it was, it was, it, it was just full of commotion, especially on the high holy day. They're just full of commotion and lots of people celebrating. And God says he's going to reverse that and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak. You'll be brought down. Your voice will come from the dust because I'm bringing you down to there. Your speech will become bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. It's not talking about spiritism here. It's just talking about weakness, a wisp. And finally, from the dust, your speech shall be a whisper. Because I will take everything away from you. I will take your strength away from you. Now, we read that and we think, wow. God sure seems like a, he's having a bad day today. He sure seems like a mean God. And yet if we have eyes to see, we know there's something wrong here. We may not be told exactly what it is yet, but if God is acting in this way, what do we know about God? He's righteous and just, and everything he does is perfect. If he does it, it's right. And so when we have eyes to see, we read this, and our knees knock because we know our own sin, and we know that they have got sin. We don't, it's described to us throughout the book. But if we just read this passage, we go, we don't know what's going on. But God is holy, and he's righteous, and he's acting, so we know he's right. See, that's encouraging to us. When we see things going on around us in our world, we know that God is moving and he's acting. He's advancing his kingdom. He's not wound us up and let us go. He is ruling and reigning through his son, and things are advancing as he thinks they should. And so when we see things that God is not coming against that we wish he would, we trust him because we know what he's doing is just and right. And when we see things that he does and it scares us because we see the movement of God, we trust him because we know what he's doing is right and it's holy and it's just. And so we might be reserved here. We might be feeling the, the, the pressure of this. We, we might even be fearful and thus we should be before a God who is powerful enough to raise up and destroy armies with a breath. That's what we look at here. But we also know that there's more to the story. If we just stopped here, we'd go away and we wouldn't be very joyful. But there's more to the story. Because not only will Yahweh distress Ariel and bring her low, Yahweh will visit destruction on Ariel's foes. Look at verse 5. But, isn't that a wonderful thing? Whatever situation we're just in and we're wondering why has this happened, we hear but and a breath of fresh air comes through. Something else is going to happen. We don't know what it is, but something else is going to happen. But the multitude, notice how multitude ties this together. Multitude, multitude, verse 7, multitude, verse 8, multitude. The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. 
Now remember, this is parallelism, it's poetry, it's parallelism, and this happens to be parallelism that's saying the same thing two different ways. And it's saying the same thing, that the multitude, the multitude will be made small like dust, be like passing chaff. That they'll be made nothing, not even just dust, but small dust, little dust. The multitude that comes against you, because why? God is working. Look at verse, um, verse the end of verse 5. And in an instant, suddenly... Right? This isn't, this isn't going to be something you have to wait for. It, it is here immediately. When God decides to act, he is acting immediately. Instantly, suddenly, you will be visited by Yahweh of hosts. Now, when God visits, he's visiting either for destruction or salvation, isn't he? For judgment or salvation. And as in almost every case we've seen in Isaiah, this is both. And it continues to be both. If you are one here this morning that has not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when God visits, it will be judgment for you. If you are one who has, when God visits, then he sees the righteousness of his son, and it will be blessings to you. Your salvation will come to fruition at that point even stronger. It will be consummated in the coming kingdom when God visits by sending Christ again. Where do you stand today? That's what's before them here. You will be visited by Yahweh of hosts in an instant, suddenly, just like that. There's not going to be time to prepare when that happens. Now, if you're part of the remnant, you're glad that it's in an instant. Because in an instant, God changes the fortunes of your physical world. And he's going to visit, and these words are just picturesque of theophanies in the Old Testament, right? God appearances like at Mount Sinai, with thunder and earthquake and great noise and whirlwind and tempest and flame of a devouring fire. Now, we've learned in Isaiah already that when God comes with that fire, he is either purifying his people or he is destroying his enemies. So we have that picture in mind. This has a historical setting. Because Sennacherib is sitting outside siege works in a few years, and he is in this siege work trying to take over Jerusalem, and God overnight slaughters 186,000 of his soldiers. Overnight. Sends an angel, it's done. Suddenly. So there is a real-world, real-time fulfillment of this, but I also hope you hear my nod toward the ultimate future fulfillment. See, any coming of the Lord, any visiting of the Lord, any day of the Lord is always a precursor to the final day of the Lord. It is a way to have God's people prepared for his final coming and a way to warn people who are still disobedient that God is patient so that you would repent. But there are still days of the Lord that come all the way through the prophets. We have the day of the Lord referring to different times of near fulfillment, all preparing us for the ultimate future fulfillment of that. And that's, again, what we have here. Verse 7, again, the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel. So everybody who comes against you, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream of vision in the night. And then it describes that dream. It's like, it's like being in a dream when you're hungry and dreaming that you eat and waking up and still be hungry. Or being thirsty when you go to sleep and being in a dream that you've taken, that you've taken water and you wake up and you're still thirsty. You think it happened, but it's so dim in your memory and there's no effects of that. That's the way God's enemies will be to God's people. So God uses them for his purpose. But then when he redeems the remnant, the past is so dull compared to the glory of being with Christ. The glory of being protected by God. That this is what it's like. It's like a dream. 
And verse 8 finishes that. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. And if you haven't been with us through this series, Mount Zion is that way of saying that this is where God dwells. It's where God dwells with his people and his people dwell with God. God has set it up that way. So Mount Zion, it's not, it's not important because it's a geographical place. It's important because spiritually that's where God dwells with his people. So Yahweh will distress Ariel and bring her low, but Yahweh will visit destruction on Ariel's foes. So both things, judgment and hope, continue to drive us forward in, in Isaiah's letter. <clears throat> Third act of Yahweh directed toward Ariel Yahweh judges Ariel. Now, we've already learned there's going to be a remnant, so we need to hold on to that, right? We need to hold on to the fact that God is redeeming a remnant for for his people. He he is doing that. In all times, he's doing that. He's doing that with the Syrians. He's doing that with the Jews. He's doing that with the other nations. We've seen over and over that different nations have a remnant that are redeemed by God. And we see that being the flowing of the gospel into all the nations now. God is taking a remnant, and, and he's forming his people, a remnant from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he's forming his people out of them and gathering together in the one new man, as Paul says in Ephesians, in the church. So that's our hope. We know that that is going on, but God is also in the business of extending his righteousness, and that includes judgment. And that's what happens in verses 9 through 13. And it's with his people. All his people are indicted. But God is still working. First we see Yahweh, blind, Yahweh blinds the prophets because they do not desire to see. Look at verse 9. Notice the, the dual action here. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For... Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. This is, this, is like, this is like Pharaoh, where Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The people do not want to see the word of God. They don't want to hear the word of God. That's why he says, astonish yourselves, blind yourselves. And this is what was promised in chapter 6, Right? Keep on seeing, but do not see, do not understand. Keep on hearing, but do not see, do not understand, do not hear. That's what Yahweh said Isaiah's ministry would be. It would be full of him hardening hearts because of the disobedience of the people. And Isaiah is supposed to what? Give up, curl up at night, and forget about it? He's supposed to continue on. And he knows he's supposed to continue on because what are his next words in chapter 6? How long, O Lord? So this is seeing what has happened, what's been promised in chapter 6. The people are blinding themselves, and God is sending a stupor upon them. They don't want to hear. They don't want to see. They've, and so he has closed their eyes, and it's, it's in parentheses for us, the prophets, the seers. It's a way of saying those people who should be hearing from God and telling you what God says, those people who should be representing you between, um, between you and, and Yahweh and standing in your stead, they, are, they have ignored the word. They have nothing to see and nothing to say anymore and the more they want nothing the more I give them nothing look at what how he describes that in verses 11 and 12 he blinds the prophets because they do not desire to see but he seals his word because they do not want to read and and this word is kind of tying it together it's like saying and that being so since this is the situation you don't want to hear the word 
and I'm just blinding you. I'm sending a stupor, a, a spirit of deep sleep. And by the way, that's the same word that was used of Adam when God took a rib from him. It's the same word when God dealt with Abram and put him in a deep sleep. So this is a stupor. They're wanting it. They're pursuing it. And God is giving them. It's like Romans 1 where God gives the people over to their own desires of sin. But in verse 11, and that being so, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. So everything that I'm telling you, Isaiah says, it's become like this. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read, he says, I cannot read. So the people who should be able to read, the word is sealed up to them. And they're not caring about that because they don't want the word anyway, so it's an excuse. Well, I can't read that. It's sealed. And when a document was sealed in this time, it, it, it was like reading somebody else's mail, as one person said it, right? I mean, it has a seal on it of some sort, either a, either a waxed seal or it's tied or it's sealed in such a way that only the person that letter goes to should be opened. And so that's a way of saying, yes, it's sealed, but you should be able to open this because the word is to you, but you don't want it. And so it remains sealed. And the people, they should be able to have it read to them and understand it, those who can't read. But if the leaders are blind to it, then the people are going to be blind to it as well. And you see dual action again. They won't open it. They won't read it. But God has sealed it. And God doesn't overcome it because this is what the people want. They have set up their own wisdom in place of God's wisdom. Well, Yahweh blinds the people because they do not desire to see. Yahweh seals his word because they do not want to read. And in verse 13, Yahweh rejects Ariel's worship because it is an outward shell without inward reality. An outward shell without inward reality. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth... And honor me with their lips. Now they should do that, yes? God's people should draw near with their mouth and honor him with their lips. This this is part of that year to year, let their feasts run round and round. This is what we should do. But it's not merely an outward manifestation of just words. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. While their hearts, their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Now, all this is giving us a picture of Isaiah's day. They're going through the actions, but their heart is not engaged. Why is it not engaged? Because they don't want to hear from God. They don't want God's word. And the more they don't want God's word, the more they get away from what God's word commands of them and offers to them. And something's going to take that place. And it is the commandments of men. It is the wisdom of man. It is the the people who are supposed to be leading, listening to Isaiah saying, blah, blah, blah. It is the people that are supposed to be being fed by the teachers who are not being fed, content and not not being fed and they're being fed whatever the teachers want and they're seeking their own wisdom and we know that because it says right here and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men now if they truly feared God there would be action and and a heart behind those actions it wouldn't just be merely going through the motions there would be a heart that would be demonstrated and how would that be demonstrated it would be demonstrated as obedience to the word that they know see a heart directed toward God 
has a life that is visible where Christ is seen. There's a connection between the two. I want you to turn, if you will, to let's turn to two places. First, we're going to chapter one of Isaiah. Chapter one of Isaiah. Remember, this is where we started. Chapter one was the introduction to the introduction of Isaiah. I know it's been many weeks since we've been here, but let's even remember where we started. This is not new for us. This is not a new concept for Isaiah. It's not a new concept for the people in Jerusalem, and it's not a new concept to us. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is, is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are the, or the, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates, and they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now that's the assessment, but even in chapter 1, what is the solution? Grace is offered even in chapter 1. That is a severe assessment. God is saying, I want nothing to do with you. Everything you do makes me sick. But verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So you see the connection? It's not just deeds, it's obedient life. It's a righteous life. It's not an evil life with evil deeds. That's what God is saying. God is saying, listen, your outward actions may conform to the outward commands I've given, but those are, those are meant for you to express your changed heart because I've redeemed you. I'm the God who redeemed you from Egypt. I'm the God who redeemed you and brought you into the promised land. And that, has, that means that your life should be different. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness justice and equity to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth let the wise hear and increase in learning 
and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. And did you see how it was described leading up to it? The Proverbs are intended, you see, that grant wisdom, but that that should have practice in your life. To gain understanding, but it should, have, it should affect your life. There was an outward change because of the wisdom and the understanding. So when you fear the Lord, it's the Lord's word that you are, that you are implementing into your life. If you are implementing anything other than the Lord's word, then it's the fear of whoever said that word. It's not the fear of the Lord. And fear is in the good sense of worship. Yes, we're fearful before the Lord because he's a righteous and holy God. But we're, we, we come to him in reverence and awe. And if our reverence and awe is in God, then when he speaks, we listen and we're overcome by it. And his people are overwhelmed and affected and changed by it. But if we listen to his word and we're not changed, and then we think, well, that word doesn't really matter to us. And we set it aside. And then he quits giving us his word as much. And we start filling it up with our own wisdom. We are not functioning in the fear of the Lord. We are, as Isaiah chapter 29 says, we are engaged in this act that the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the commandments taught by men. And that's where we are left. And that is a horrible place for us to be as Bible-believing Christians. And yet this is speaking to us. Every time that you and I hear the word and set it aside is not today, not yet. Well, I, the Lord knows my situation. He knows that, that, doesn't, that that's not for me today. I know what the word says, but instead of I know what I'm thinking, but God says, when we get those things turned around, we are moving away from the fear of the Lord and we are putting our trust in the wisdom of men. Because you were saying that it's my wisdom that means more than what God has said and I'm going to be controlled by that. And so when we talk about the fear of of God or having the fear of the commandment of men, that is really, as I said at the very beginning, we are falling into the trap of being, we are going by our own commandment, our own law, our own wisdom and it's just like in Malachi chapter 1 where the prophet where God says through the prophet oh that someone would have the courage to come up and shut the door to the temple so that you would stop offending me with your offerings we can be in that situation if you live in that situation day by day by day and it continues to grow it may mean that you have never experienced the grace of Jesus Christ It may mean that you are outside of grace. You're going through the motions day after day, service after service, Bible study after Bible study. Now, if you're here this morning as a believer, and you know that there are areas of of your life that are like this, where you are setting the word of God aside and replacing your own wisdom, your heart is already melting within you. Conviction has come upon you by the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just leave us there, does he? There's always hope. Look back in Isaiah. There is always hope. Verse 14. The fourth act of Yahweh directed toward Ariel. Er, Yahweh will bless Ariel. Because after we read verse 13 and the first word of 14, therefore, we're expecting to hear more about judgment of Ariel. We're expecting to hear more. The fire's gotten hotter. But what we hear is a word of hope. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, 
I understand that if, if the people that are in Isaiah's hearing here are the ones who continue walking away from the Lord and having the fear of the commandments of men, this is not a good day. This is not a good message. This is another visiting by God because God says specifically that the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. But for the remnant... The remnant who are convicted, they hear God's word and they're convicted and they want their leaders to get things right and they want them to get things right and their families to get things right and to return to the word of God and to be obedient to that. This is a, this is a word of grace because he is going to remove all that human wisdom and he's going to do something else and it's going to be wonderful. Wonder upon wonder. Now when God judges the wicked, it's a wonderful thing. It is wonder upon wonder. And it makes us fear. But when God redeems his remnant, it is a wonderful thing. Wonder upon wonder. And you say, well, where is there hope in here for us? How do we take hope in this? Because God does come against the, the enemies of Jerusalem in this day at the end of the 8th century. He does come against them. And yet they still go into captivity in 586. And there's going to be a remnant that comes back. But is it always going to be like that? Is it always just this circular where there's judgment and there's hope and there's judgment and there's hope? And I would say no, because God has done a wonder of wonders. Because he has sent his son to remove the wisdom of the world. There are two places in here that are quoted in the New Testament. And it gives us the insight of how this is such great news to us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, we're going to start in, well, we're going to start in verse 17. But in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14. And he quotes this situation as being the fulfillment of the prophet. Look at verse 17. In verses 10 through 16, Paul is rebuking them, saying there's factions among them, there's divisions. And some say they follow Paul, some Cephas, some, uh, some follow Christ, and there's divisions among them. And he says, listen, I'm here to do one thing. I'm not here to baptize, I'm here to preach the gospel. And not through, look at verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The same word, the same visitation. To those who are perishing, it brings destruction. For those who are being saved, it continues bringing salvation. For it is written, and then he quotes our verse, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So when Paul quotes Isaiah, what is he saying does the destroying? It is the cross. It is the work of Christ on the cross who comes to do the work that God intended. For it is written, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are preaching, but to are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and then he quotes that section. So it is the cross that, dis, that does this. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, that's what Isaiah 29 promises, right? God will make foolish the wisdom of the world and the discernment of those who fake discernment. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is Christ on the cross providing the power of God and the wisdom of God to all who will believe. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 29, 14. This is what Isaiah is alluding to for the final um, fulfillment of that prophecy. Yes, it happens in that day, but it's leading us toward Christ. Continue on with me. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, this is why it's good news when God overcomes the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the wise men. It's good for those of us who are hungering for the word of God because God provides this. He overcomes it all. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So those of us who want wisdom of God, we read the word and it means nothing to us. We need the spirit of God. We need to enter into union with Christ by entering into his work, repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. That is the responsibility. And then once that, got, that miracle has happened, it's a responsibility for us to constantly choose to keep our minds focused on God and his wisdom. Thinking of the things of the above, not the things are low, below. The wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below. Because we can get caught up into traps. I mean, that's why Paul wrote to the Colossians. Because they were caught up in the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom of God and he admonishes them keep your focus on the things above so that's our constant life how do you enter into doing the wisdom of knowing and doing and applying the wisdom of God you trust in Christ his savior who is the one who through the foolishness of that message priest and and what looks like foolishness to the lost world of of the son of God dying on the cross provides for you everything you need for life and godliness including all the wisdom and knowledge and sanctification it all comes from Christ and even in Christ's time it looked different turn to gospel of Mark Two more passages, both in Mark. We're going to start in chapter 4. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you where. What happens? I mean, we see this all around us. Why do some get caught up in the wisdom of men and some the wisdom of God? Well, Jesus tells us as he teaches his people through the parable of the sower. We're not going to go through all of this, but look at verse 10 of chapter 4 of the gospel of Mark. And when he was alone, those around him, and if you remember the symbolism in Mark, there are those on the outside and those on the inside. So these are the insiders, those who are around him, with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom. Secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. 
that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do, not, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And he begins the parable of the sower and the seed. And the sower sows the seed. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no, but they have no root in themselves, but enduring for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, lest we get confused, all of these examples of ground in which, on which the seed fell are all leading to lostness, not salvation. There's no partial salvation here. This is the word of God heard and rejected, and it bears no fruit. And when it bears no fruit, it leaves the people open to earthly wisdom. And you listen, this is so important for us to understand that the world is dying for our wisdom. They don't know it, but they're dying for it. Everything that they try does not work for them. I mean, they're listening to people around. Let me just give you an example. Can I just say yes, because I'm giving you an example. There are many people who think Dolly Parton is this fine Christian woman. And she is full of just Christianity. Listen to this. Stephen Colbert. No, no, I'm on the wrong. I've got two illustrations, but this is Dolly Parton um, on a final episode of a podcast called Dolly Parton's America. She uh, she offered a response to this question. What is the theology of Dolly Parton? And here's her answer. I'm not spiritual. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Hmm. The Bible says, let every man seek out his own salvation. How are we starting? Does the Bible say, let every man seek out his own salvation? You're supposed to work it out. You're supposed to pursue. But here's how she sees it. And that means to save himself. Do you like Dolly Parton's theology? You got to go save yourself. Whatever it takes to save you, and if you can get to that place and find your own peace, then you can do good for other people if you are not, if you are at peace with yourself. And when she was asked about the afterlife, she said, you don't really know, you just hope, and you have faith. That's what faith is. I think it's not the end of me. I don't think it's the end of any of us. I think we're recycled, and if nothing else, we just go back into the great flow of divine energy, and hopefully we spread ourselves around in other wonderful ways. That's the wisdom of the world. And as you'll hear in a minute, many people believe that. Ringo Starr, when he's asked about this, this was just two years ago, um, he was, he was asked, what happens when you die? And he says, I think we go to heaven. And Stephen Colbert says, who's asking the questions, what's heaven like? And Ringo Starr says, heaven's great, but, if, but you don't stay there for very long. You just got to get yourself together again and come deal with all this stuff that you didn't deal with the last time you were here. Pop psychology, the wisdom of man, the world listens to them. The world hears them. 
And then they implement their theology and they're lacking. There's been study after study done through the, through the um, uh, pandemic, especially when people have come separated from other people and their relationships have gone away. And especially in one certain age group of people, the millennials, there are all kinds of TikTok and online people who are spiritual. And their primary followers are in the younger generation. And they have all of these things to say. And I read an article this week by a millennial who said, I'm tired of all of this. I'm tired of all this stuff. None of it, I think our words were none of it works. Well, of course, none of it works. And none of it is real. And she says, left-wing secular millennials follow politics devoutly. And she describes this, um, this whole thing, the politics and the religion. It's a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. Now, these are two separate places I'm reading this. And Dolly Parton's name jumps out. And this author says she is longing for this. This is the world that you're ministering to. This is why our wisdom has to come from God. And our lives have to look like God says they should look through obedience. This person writes, I just long for role models my age who are not only righteous crusaders, but also humble and merciful. And that I'm not finding them where I live online. So in other words, in her online community, she's not finding them. There is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside of me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my, out, on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. That is the longing heart of the world that God sends us into, living lives that are obedient to his word and bringing people the wisdom of God instead of the wisdom of man. It was present in Jesus' day. The other place that Isaiah 29 is, is brought to us in the New Testament is Jesus quoting it. When Jesus is challenged, well, why, don't, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the, to the precepts of men in the law? And he quotes this passage and he says, you're, you're really good at following the precepts of men. You're really good at following what men want to do, but you are not following God. Now, before we get too far away, I know it's time for us to quit, but before we get too far away from us, this happens when we come to worship and don't engage with the word. When we go away and the only thing we can say was a funny illustration that the preacher made or a song that we liked or probably most often a song we didn't like. And that's the way we go away. That's what we remember. Our conversations after church are the conversations that would have to happen after a ball game or a knitting class or, or anything else. Because the word is not washed over us. The word is not captivated us because Christ is not captivating us. Because the word brings this full picture of what Christ has done. And those of us who are in Christ, our hearts sing when we hear about this. And it transforms us and it transforms our life. Because if our life does not match what the scriptures command of us, remember Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. He doesn't say obey me to show your love. He says the obedience is a product of love. And if God has loved us first, then we love him. And if that love is true, there will be an obedience that falls. It will not follows. It will not be perfect because we're still being sanctified. We're still being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. 
But if we move one iota away from the wisdom of God, and he has spoken to us through his son, and we know about his son through his word. If we move one iota away, we've moved into our realm. We've moved into our rules, our wisdom, and God help us when we do that. Because it will not lead anywhere constructive. Now, the beautiful thing is God causes his people to repent. You know what that means. It means to turn away. To turn away from what we're doing and follow something else. And so when we, if we are to be saved for the very first, if we are going to be saved, if we are lost and going to be saved, we must turn away from our own wisdom and trust in Christ. The one who lived a perfect life and died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We must put our faith and trust in him in order to be saved. And if you're not saved here this morning, today could be the day of your salvation. But if you are saved, repentance still marks us, doesn't it? We are thankful to God that he disciplines us through the preached word, the sung word, the prayed word, the read word. We're thankful that he disciplines us and he disciplines us because he loves us. And then he exalts us out of our repentance at the proper time. That's the gift to us. So, yes, we want to come and be corporate worshipers and we want to grow in that. Yes. But if you walk out of this place and live a life that looks no different than any lost person, then you're coming in here day after day, cycle after cycle. And God will visit you. So our exhortation this morning is to learn from Isaiah that our worship is not drawing near with our mouth, but not with our hearts, but that we are drawing near with our hearts, our obedience, our love for God, and our mouths then sing out of that love. Our lips sing out of that love. That brings glory and honor to God, and it changes us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation in your word. Thank you, Father, that you have brought us to a point that we understand through the power of your spirit, the truth of your word. So we pray, Father, this morning that, would you, that you would make us better worshipers. And by that, Father, we're not just asking that we sing louder or raise our hands. Or, we're, we're asking, Father, for every time that we come before the word that our hearts and minds are open to your word, to your wisdom, that we set our own wisdom aside that everything that you reveal to us in your word, we're endeavoring to implement and obey in our lives. That we are not the people that become hard-hearted and come and receive your word and, and receive it the same way we receive a, a podcast or a television show. We desire, Father, to be sanctified. We desire, Father, to come before you and let you mold us and make us through the work of your son and the power of your spirit. For you have sent your son to do that work. We have been reconciled to you. We have been brought into your family. We are in union with Christ. And it is him, our great high priest, who has done the work and continues to do the work on our behalf. So let us bask in the truth of your word. We pray, Father, that, the, that our fear would be of you. And that fear would be demonstrated by the obedience in our lives. So then we go out to a lost and dying world, Father. We are the wisdom that they are searching for. We are the wisdom from on high. We are representing the creator of the universe, the king of kings, lord of lords. And we ask, Father, for you to do this miracle in us and in our families and in our church so that our witness would be powerful and strong. For we live in a world, Father, that's dark. But it's not out of your control. And you have the light of Christ Help us to keep our light from being under a bushel so that we might be a people who are witnesses, not only with our words, 
but with our life. And that we are worshipers, not only with our words, but with our hearts. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.